Friends, let's, um, the Bible reading is printed on the bulletin and it's uh, taken from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were put together, with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sin, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Hello, everyone. It is great to see you here. And uh, let me add my welcome to Foxes. I'm really glad that you've joined us this morning. Can I just do a quick check? Uh, hands up if you did get an extra hour of sleep this morning. Uh, oh, there you go. This is the, the highest proportion of any congregation I've asked so far this morning. Hands up who didn't get an extra hour of sleep. Yes, yes, those with young children, maybe those with pets, maybe those with slightly older children. I was um, out in our living room and one of the boys wandered in at 10 past six and just kind of looked at me a bit sleepily and said, is it 10 past seven? It's like, no, it's not. And uh, so he went back to bed and then five minutes later another, remember these are not young children, these are older children, another son came in and said, is it quarter past seven? No, it's not. So he went back to bed and by that point the dog was awake and so no, I, I just think this is like a day of promise every year that doesn't deliver. Um, <laughs> it's like clouds without rain, um, to quote to Peter. Anyway, um, it is great to have you. So my name's Wal, I'm the Senior Minister here at Narrenburn Camry Anglican Church. It's great uh, that you've joined us and we're remembering that Christ is risen, he's risen indeed. I love uh, being able to think about the New Testament accounts of Jesus' resurrection. Um, for me personally, as I look back on nearly 30 years of being a Christian, uh, I think there's two things that have very much helped me uh, when I've gone through times of uncertainty and doubt. Um, the first of those is the ongoing faith of other believers, and especially uh, those who I consider to be kind of ahead of me in big kind of areas of human learning, like biblical studies and philosophy and history. 
And I think to myself, look, if these men and women, they've probably worked out answers to issues where I haven't even thought of the questions yet, and if they're able to keep going as Christians, then so can I, and so that helps me. But the second thing that has helped me persevere uh, as a Christian through times of doubt is really the historical trustworthiness of the New Testament accounts of Jesus' resurrection. For me, that's just become an immovable rock on which my following of Christ has been able to stand. Uh, The eyewitnesses are too many for it to be dismissed as conspiracy or fabrication. The the appearances are too tangible for it to be dismissed as kind of mere hallucination. Um, the, The kind of shift in history that takes place is so seismic that it really can't be explained in any other way and all other alternate explanations in my mind are too flawed to pass the pub test. And so I know it might sound extraordinary to some people the idea that the resurrection of Jesus is historically trustworthy and certainly we ought to acknowledge the complete seriousness of this issue because in many ways the whole Christian faith stands or falls on this issue. Uh, If the resurrection accounts are true, then everything we know and believe about life has to be regarded in a new light. If the resurrection accounts are false, then the whole Christian faith is just a house of cards and it really should be completely ignored. Maybe even it should be silenced. But I think those are the two options. There was an article online uh, yesterday in The Guardian by an Australian journalist called Paul Daly and uh, he was reflecting on the benefits of this Easter long weekend. Uh, Paul Daly himself is not a Christian man, and so for him, uh, this weekend is just a much appreciated opportunity, without all the kind of crazy mania of Christmas time, it's just a much appreciated opportunity to slow down and to do some personal self-reflection. But he obviously knows that for many people, this weekend is a time to remember a resurrection, and um, I thought he was very kind of respectful and generous in his comments towards people who think of this weekend in such a way. He encouraged such people to use this weekend to pray for the community and we'll do that later on in the service. It did strike me as a bit unusual, however, that he was so even-minded about the idea that, broadly speaking, there could be these two very different ways of using this weekend. Some people use it to remember a resurrection. Some people use it to do some personal reflection. But either one is as good as the other. Just take your pick. Here's my question. Are the claims of a resurrection really that bland? Are they really that innocuous? Are they really that insipid? That we can simply take it or leave it without any real consequence either way except what we think about across the Easter weekend? Because just to be absolutely clear, when I talk about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, I'm not using those words metaphorically or poetically or with some kind of mystical religious significance that obscures the basic meaning of the words. No, I mean them very plainly in the way I think the Bible means them very plainly. That Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was accredited by God with a three-year ministry of public teaching and by signs and miracles and wonders which God did through him, 
who was betrayed by one of his closest followers, Judas Iscariot, so that he was arrested by the Jewish religious leaders, who was then uh, abandoned by the rest of his disciples as he was handed over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who was put on trial, who was falsely accused, who was mocked, beaten, spat on, crowned with thorns, robed in purple, sentenced to death, even though Pilate knew he was innocent, nailed to a Roman cross. He would have had his legs broken too if they hadn't already found him dead to speed up the process. Instead, they speared him in the side just to show that his life was already gone. His body was then brought down from the cross and wrapped in, in spices and strips of linen in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And, and he, his body was placed in a tomb and covered with a stone that this same Jesus, now on the third day, the Sunday after the Friday that he'd been killed, has been raised from the dead and was now alive again physically and bodily. I mean, surely an event like that, if it really has taken place, surely it has to mean something of extraordinary significance, doesn't it? And that's what we're thinking about this morning. We've got this weekend set aside still in our society to consider Jesus' death and resurrection. And today we're thinking of his resurrection. And so I've got three headings if you just want to mentally kind of sort what I'm going to say. Uh, the resurrection of Jesus the mission of Jesus' disciples, and then the blessing of those who believe in Jesus. So first, the resurrection physically and bodily of Jesus. Because I think in John's Gospel, that really is an unavoidable aspect of what goes on, isn't it? Because in the passage we read together before, you've got it on your little sheets, uh, both times that Jesus appears, uh, first of all, when Thomas is absent in verse 19, and then a week later when Thomas is present in verse 26, both times that Jesus appears, there is an emphasis on the touchable, tangible, physical proof that this is the very same man who on the Friday just gone was publicly crucified. Not just the nail marks in his hands, or probably more properly his wrists, that would have been there for every body of a crucified person, but also the mark in his side where the spear went in, that was particular to Jesus alone. And so it's no wonder that when the disciples come face to face with this Jesus who was crucified, there is a remarkable transformation in them. So in the front half, the, the group of 10 disciples, minus Judas, minus Thomas, so you get to 10, um, they, they're kind of in a locked room for fear of the Jewish leaders, and that's completely plausible from a historical point of view, because if against all standards of justice, the Jewish leaders have organised for Jesus to be killed, how much more would they be able to pick off his followers now that he's gone? So they're in a locked room, fearful, and, uh, but Jesus appears to them and he greets them with peace and he shows them his hands and his side. And verse 20, the disciples were overjoyed. They were just overjoyed, overwhelmed in their rejoicing when they saw the Lord. The transformation in Thomas is even more remarkable because he goes from that steadfast refusal to accept his friend's solemn testimony that they'd seen the Lord and uh, then when he sees Jesus, he has this unreserved confession, verse 28, my Lord and my God. And we're not even told that Thomas did have to reach out and touch Jesus' hands or, or, or feel his side. 
it seems that even just the appearance of Jesus was enough for him to come to this conclusion. It is a stunning confession. It's much more than just Jesus, a good moral teacher. It's even more than Jesus, a prophet of God. Uh, This really maxes out what can be said about Jesus, doesn't it? Once you've declared him to be Lord and God, you've really hit the ceiling. There's nowhere else to go on your confession. Of course, it's absolutely correct. And John's Gospel has tried to make this clear to us, even from the very beginning. You might remember, if you know John's Gospel, some famous well-known verses right at the start, chapter 1, verse 1, and then verse 14. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. And this is John's way of introducing us to Jesus. Right from the start of his Gospel, John has wanted us to know that Jesus is both Lord and God. It's just that it's taken Thomas until this moment when the risen Jesus is standing before him in the flesh, able to be seen and touched. It's taken Thomas until now to know and to believe and to understand it. What about us? Have we confessed that Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, is both Lord and God? Because if he is, it will change everything. It will mean that he alone deserves our trust and he alone deserves our honour and he alone deserves our devotion. And he alone deserves our obedience and he alone deserves our love. That's what it will mean if he is risen from the dead and both Lord and God. And so there's the first point, the resurrection of Jesus, which makes the disciples overjoyed and leads to the confession that he's both Lord and God. Second point, uh, the mission of Jesus' disciples. I think verse 21 is really the key here because now a second time Jesus greets them with a word of peace and then he says to them, Verse 21, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now, I know that this will be the case. Well, I'm sure that this will be the case. Put your hand up if you in the room play netball. There's people that play netball in the room. Yep, a couple of people play netball. I used to play netball, as you can see. I'm in a temporary gap of my netball career um, after a little injury. But uh, we were playing the other day before I got this splint, and um, they put me in goalkeep so I can do minimal damage to the prospects of our team. And the the person who was opposite me is goal shooter, and it's mixed netball. This guy, he went down in a screaming heap, and uh, immediately he was kind of muttering and and cursing quite loudly. And I thought, I think I know what this injury is. Uh, He'd sprained his ankle, and I'm intimately acquainted with this injury, having done it several times myself. And so I know both the advantages of doing good first aid and the disadvantages of doing none, because I've done both. Um, And so immediately I kind of turned to the rest of the players on the court, and I called out, someone needs to get ice. Uh, But, you know, where we are, none of us know where the ice is kept, and so one of the players had to run to the official, say, we need ice, go and get ice. And so the official ran off to get some ice. And so I sent a player, a player sent the official, I mean, two sendings, but it's the same basic mission, right? We get that idea, it's not too complicated. I think it's the same sort of idea here with Jesus as he makes this point in verse 21. Um, One of the things in John's Gospel that has been told to us again and again, in fact, 47 times if we were to count them up, is that Jesus has been sent into the world on a mission by God, his heavenly Father. He's been sent on a mission into the world to accomplish salvation, 
to bring the forgiveness of sins to everyone who believes in him. And so just one verse to try and prove this to you, John 3, 17. Uh, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So there's the mission that Jesus has been sent on, not to condemn, but to save the world. But you see, now that Jesus has died on the cross and been raised to life again, that mission is accomplished. The work is done. It's complete. And that's why in John 19, just a little bit ahead of our passage, the very last words that Jesus cries out from the cross are, it is finished. It's done. It's complete. Jesus' mission is over. In his death, the perfect son of God, a fitting sacrifice for the sins of the world has been offered and accepted by God. And so now all we must do to take hold of salvation is to believe in Jesus, to trust that our sins have been paid for by him. Well, that's why the disciples are now being sent into the world on a mission by Jesus, just as he's been sent by his heavenly father into the world on a mission. He was sent to accomplish salvation. They are sent to proclaim salvation. To proclaim the salvation that he has accomplished. That's why in verse 22, Jesus speaks about giving them the Holy Spirit because this is not a mission they will be able to do on them, by themselves. They'll need God's help. They will need Uh, God's power. They will need God to be at work in them and through them. They will need God's Holy Spirit. It's why in verse 23, Jesus says that if they forgive anyone's sins, then their sins are forgiven. If they don't forgive their sins, then their sins are not forgiven. Because you see, this news that Jesus has accomplished salvation, this news that Jesus has died as the sacrificial Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world... This news that he's been raised from the dead is both Lord and God. It always invites a response. It invites a response from us today. We can either accept it or we can reject it. We can either believe in Jesus or we cannot believe in Jesus. But depending which of those two responses we make will necessarily lead to a particular outcome. If we accept the message and we believe in Jesus, then our sins are forgiven. And our debt of sin is cancelled because it's been paid for on our behalf by Jesus in his death. We come to a position before God of peace. If on the other hand we reject the message, we choose not to believe in Jesus, then our sins are not forgiven and we continue to carry before God the burden of our own sins. And God's anger remains on us. And so Jesus gives the disciples this mission to go into the world and tell people about the salvation that he has accomplished. And as they do that, there'll be these different responses. Those who accept the message will have their sins forgiven. Those who reject the message will remain under God's judgment. And I think it's the same thing going on in verse 29 when Jesus responds to Thomas's confession by saying, because you have seen me, you've believed, well, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Uh, When you first hear these words, I think it's easy to think that what Jesus is doing is drawing a contrast between two kinds of faith, two qualities of faith. Maybe one we could describe as uh, faith that's based on evidence, faith that is empirical, 
what can be seen and touched. The other one, it's not based on what is seen because there wasn't anything seen. It's kind of, it's a shot in the dark. It's, it's speculative. It's, it's faith. Is that what Jesus is contrasting? I don't think it is. I think all that's going on here is Jesus is once again kind of looking ahead to the mission that the disciples will go on because now that his mission is complete, he's about to return to his heavenly father. And as they go out to tell people about him, he simply won't be available for that same opportunity of being seen in the flesh that the disciples have just had. There's nothing problematic about that. We mustn't think that a faith that arises in such a situation is unreasonable or invalidated. Um, I was speaking to a friend of mine yesterday, he's a a criminal defence lawyer, and he kind of helped me understand, actually we have a whole criminal defence system that is built upon this principle. It depends on exactly this kind of situation, where the members of a jury have to have a legal disinterest they, they have to come to a case completely cold. They can't have any personal knowledge of the people involved in the case. And, and as a, a judge reads out a list of, of people involved in the case, if they know anyone, they need to acknowledge it and they'll be dismissed from, from service on the jury. But we have a whole way of making decisions like this all the time. We, we depend on it. But just as a jury's decision is to be based on the testimony of eyewitnesses, so too our decisions about Jesus. It's not speculative or unreasonable. Jesus is simply recognising that those who hear about him from the disciples as they go out, they'll be in a different position, historically speaking, to the disciples themselves. But it's the same blessing for both groups, those who see and believe and those who hear and believe. So at the end now, let's very briefly think, what is this blessing that comes from believing in Jesus? Well, uh, I think it's three things. First, it is peace with God. Remember, that's what Jesus says three times to the disciples, peace be with you. Because now that his work of salvation is complete, this is what is on offer to everyone who trusts in Jesus. A restored relationship with God. A restored relationship with the God who made us to love him with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength. A restored relationship with the God who knows better than we do ourselves just how far short we fall of that standard and yet who has still sent his son into the world not to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And so peace with God. Second, it is the forgiveness of sins. Remember verse 23 where Jesus said, if you forgive anyone's sins, they are forgiven. As you tell people about me and they believe in me, their sins are forgiven. Because now that his work of salvation is complete, this is what is on offer. To have our unpayable debt of sin cancelled. Because it's been paid for on our behalf by Jesus in his death. And then finally, it is the gift of eternal life. Because there's two verses we haven't even looked at yet, so let's have a look at them. Verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
As a church, we spent the last two weeks thinking hard about the life that comes through trusting in Jesus. It is a good life. It is a life which satisfies our very deepest needs. It is a life that overcomes death, as we've already heard. Because it has its source in Jesus Christ, who himself has conquered sin and death. It is a life that stretches well beyond this passing moment in which we all find ourselves right now. Hard for us to remember that, but that's the Bible's perspective. Our lives are just like a blade of grass or a flower of the field. They are very quickly gone. But the life that comes through Jesus stretches on into eternity for age without end. And it's a life that is on offer to every one of us by believing in Jesus Christ, who is Lord and God, Messiah and Son of God. So let me lead us in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that this day we have this particular opportunity to remember that even death could not hold Jesus down, that he is risen from the dead and he has appeared and many saw him. Heavenly Father, help us to believe in him even though we have not seen him and help us by believing in him to know the gift of peace with you and forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Increase our joy this Easter. Amen.